This episode of the Flagship Pod is sponsored by Porkbun.com. Porkbun is a refreshingly different domain name registrar with over 500 domain extensions available at the lowest prices around. They've got everything from .com, .finance, and .investments to .app and .dev for the tech-forward community. You get more for your investment with Porkbun as every domain name comes with freebies like SSL certificates, who is privacy, web and email hosting trials, and so much more. Porkbun even has a new AI-generated search tool using ChatGPT, changing the way people look for domain names. It's all backed by incredible support 365 days a year, plus thousands of five-star reviews on Trustpilot from real customers. Their site is simple and easy to navigate, so you can manage everything about your new domain from one place. To celebrate five years of .app, Porkbun is giving listeners a .app or .dev domain name free for the first year. Grab your free .app or .dev domain by going to porkbun.com slash moby or using the code moby during checkout. Thank you so much. From Moby.co, this is the Flagship Pod, a weekly live podcast about the stock market, the economy, and the various market forces powering the world around you. As always, I'm your host, Peter Starr, bringing you this time, you know, a little bit of a good vibes podcast. We got really strong inflation data this week, both on the CPI and the PPI, and bank earnings didn't completely tank the market, as some people were worried about. So a lot of really interesting things to unpack as we try to understand where we are in this inflationary cycle. As always, audience, to help me sort of figure that out, I am joined by Justin Kramer, CEO, co-founder, and chief analyst here at Moby.co. Justin, man, what's good, dude? How's it going? How are you feeling about the market so far? And I think, you, are, you back, are you back on the East Coast now, dude? Has it happened? Back on the East Coast, uh, <laughs> back in the swing of things, but markets, uh, markets are definitely going well, obviously. We're seeing Bitcoin rise above 30,000, which for anyone who's been a long-term holder, obviously, it's good to see that probably down a little bit over 50% from its all-time highs in the you know 60 to 70 range. Past that, markets are continuing to rally. The amazement of how you know short-term minded everyone is in terms of forgetting the bad news and only looking at the positive news is shows you you know how bullish people want to be and how much capital they're sitting on the sidelines um the the news of silicon valley bank seems like it happened years ago at this point and people are forgetting it so you know like we've been cautiously optimistic but there's still a, a lot of things we need to be very very aware of and it's not you know let's put every single remaining dollar of capital we have back to work Exactly. I think one of the big things that nobody really talks about is the amount of dry powder that's, you know, still on the sidelines. It's probably going to be on the sidelines for the next couple of months as the market susses this out and understands when we might be able to re-enter sort of a growth environment. We're obviously not going to go back to 0% interest rates anytime soon. The Fed's still going to be mulling about doing any interest rates rise this month, maybe holding this month and definitely doing one next month. But we're in that phase where like the Fed has said, we're only going to raise interest rates one more time and then kind of like let things hold and see where inflation comes down, right? So that's very exciting and interesting. But let's kind of work backwards and talk about the most recent news and then get back to inflation and see how we think for it moving forward. Because the main thing, Justin, that a lot of us are really concerned about is seeing today's bank earnings. We thought we would see a bunch of regional banks post, you know, reduced revenues and see some more stock flight from there. But right now, we're just mainly seeing the only real consequence of SVB's collapse, which is big banks 
getting big bucks, right? JP Morgan is up 7% today as money has just flooded into that big bank. Same thing with Citi. Wells Fargo was up this morning after open after like some extra money coming into them, but they're now down along with PNC Bank and a bunch of regional banks. When you look at this, Justin, are we seeing the beginning of like a wave of consolidation in the wake of SVB? Or is this just kind of like a small little shuffle as we, you know, temporarily flee to safety and then get back to business as usual? Or is the banking system potentially still, you know, at an inflection point where we could see another bank failure moving forward as rates keep, you know, staying at this height? And we're in a very interesting position right now where we're definitely not out of the clear, but you're seeing consolidation in the industry, which is exactly what the government and ultimately people and consumers want to avoid. Mass consolidation in the banking system is never good. Regional banks, uh, the disbursement of assets across, you know, various institutions is ultimately very strong for the U.S. economy. And so naturally, you know, in times of pressure and times of turmoil, People are taking their money out of places that are potentially shaky and putting them in, you know, legacy institutions that are perceived as safe. So JP Morgan being, you know, the largest U.S. bank by assets, uh, ultimately saw a massive new uh, account opening activity in the wake of the Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank collapse. Um, they estimated that they had retained approximately $50 billion of deposit inflows at the end of the quarter, uh, given the massive inflow of capital that was coming in their door. And then because of that, they ultimately saw um, a lot of interest on hand in terms of the accounts or the money they have on hand and the interest it earns uh, rise significantly. Um, net net interest income rose to $20 billion, which is a 49% increase uh, and company-wide revenue then increased by 25% to almost $40 billion. So they ultimately, long story short, some of the larger banks was helped by this mass consolidation, but over the long run, you know, while they'll obviously continue to hold some of the assets that they got on their balance sheets, there's going to be outflows at some point. And just because they had these inflows doesn't mean that they and the rest of the banking system is necessarily safe. We'd be really hard pressed to think that, you know, JP Morgan is going out of business anytime soon. And we're not suggesting that. But this contagion effect is definitely far potentially from over. It's hard to say because it's very much due to risks risks, and then how people respond to those risks. In the case of Silicon Valley Bank, they were over leveraged in the sense that they were taking deposits, um, investing them in what they thought was long-term bonds. And then when those bonds lost a ton of value, they didn't want to sell them. Um, and so they had this you know, liquidity issue on their hands. They had to sell the bonds as people started taking out their money and it created this contagion effect. Um, Silicon Valley Bank definitely was not running properly in terms of their risk controls on the management side. But from a regulatory perspective, they were allowed to do this. They weren't doing anything wrong per se. So just because they weren't doing anything wrong doesn't mean other banks aren't doing other things wrong and other companies aren't doing anything wrong. So, you know, it's people haven't dug into this and to the extent that I think they should have. Um, but ultimately, other banks are then subject to the same exact risk. Um, every bank is leveraged to a certain extent. Dodd-Frank and other regulatory measures have helped curb back the amount of you know, leverage that a bank can use, but ultimately for every dollar that the bank has, they lend out more than a dollar. So in theory, if people pull out their money in kind of mass, they're going to be subject to a bank run as well. So it's a long-winded way of saying, you know, bank profits are up, the markets are up. They've completely basically forgot about this Silicon Valley bank stuff, but it doesn't mean the risk still isn't there, especially again, while loan activity is down um, and people are, you know, flush with cash more or less as they are not, you know, consuming as much economic activity, 
there's still a ton of risks in, until the Fed, in theory, reduces rates, reverses their rate policy. Uh, the world runs on cheap debt. So when rates are elevated, there's always you know substantial risk that around the corner. The Silicon Valley Bank thing um, is the most apparent one. If something happens tomorrow, you know, might be another risk that people weren't aware of. So there's these constant, you know, black swan type events potentially waiting around the corner. It doesn't mean they will happen, but as investors, it's something that we need to be aware of that, you know, there are still plenty, plenty of risks. And that's the most important thing to realize, too. And one thing that we need to keep talking about is sometimes these things aren't necessarily surprises, right? And it's not necessarily the market itself conspiring to destroy these companies. It's always going to be a management issue. Like, if you were watching Silicon Valley Bank closely, you would have been fine with investing with them from September of last year, despite the fact that their issue with unrealized losses actually began in September of last year. If you manage your risk well, you can survive a couple of years of unrealized losses, because it's not an issue of mismatched money. It's mismatched timing, right, with the way that the yield curve inverted and all of that complicated financial nonsense so we can't really see you know those managerial mistakes until basically the moment they come to a head and break down and they break down as in the case of svb over the course of a single like a 48 hour period right and that's due to both how massive this managerial issue was and also just how insular the vc space is basically you have whole apis now that can take all of your funds straight out of a bank if you need to if you're a company and so svb got drained without people having to actually run to the bank and have a straight up bank run which is ultimately what caused the collapse so Really interesting period right now. We're going to take the good vibes while we get them, right? But speaking of which, let's see how we're going to take this moving forward and think about where the market is moving. Are we still in a precarious position that's about to break? Or are we like, is the precarity the depth of the issue we saw from COVID? So, Justin, we get now into more stale news from earlier in the week. CPI came at only 5%. Markets anticipated 5.1. It's 5% now. It's still double what the Fed wants to be. Technically more than double. Math is hard. I don't know what to tell you guys. Um, but the PPI this month also came in actually deflationary. Things like um, for energy energy goods came in at down 6.5% six, six year over year, bringing the actual producer price index down by just over half a percent month over month. It's still at parity for the year, basically, like it's at 2% for the year, right? Um, but is this a really encouraging sign? Like, PPI is more of a leading indicator, CPI is more of a lagging indicator. Are we going to see this inflationary, this, are we going to see inflation, like, fall quickly here? Is this a sign that, like, we're going to get right back to the good vibes, like, within this year? Or are we getting a little bit ahead of ourselves as we think about uh, the PPI turning into deflationary? You know what I'm asking? Yeah, I'm glad you asked this, because a lot of people are looking at the report and just thinking, inflation rules the world right now. If inflation is up, the Fed has to raise rates, bad for the markets. If inflation goes down, the Fed doesn't have to raise rates, good for the markets. And while, you know, at a very, very high level, that is true, ultimately, there's a lot more factors at play than just is inflation up or is inflation down. So yes, inflation is down 0.1% month over month, or sorry, up 0.1% month over month, which is basically flat. And instead of being up 70% year over year, it's up closer to 5% uh, on the CPI side. On the PPI side, it's it's actually down. So you look at that and you're like, okay, well, inflation is slowing down. It's not up, uh, you know, seven eight percent. Um, it's it's ultimately getting closer to the Fed's target, which is true. But when you zoom out even further, what you're seeing is basically that five percent only be a twelve month look back. So if you look back two three years, their average two percent target, you know, right now maybe they're at double the two percent target or a little bit more than double to your point. But when you zoom out two, three years, there, you know, it's significantly more than double because prices were elevated so much in the last few years. And so it's negating 
uh, a bigger data set and only looking at something short term. So when we look at that and see that, it's still, you know, while it's encouraging, it's still, again, like everything, cautious. Like we need to be cautiously optimistic because prices are still elevated significantly. Just because they're not necessarily increasing at the rate they were, they're still historically up a ton. And so the ability for people to afford things and the ability for companies to then make money and then pay their employees and, you know, round and round the world goes is still a massive underlying problem that necessarily hasn't been solved. And then when we look forward, you said to your point on the PPI and just our expectations, you know, a lot of this is subject to energy prices and energy prices had been decreasing for a bit. But now OPEC comes out. And for those of you unaware, OPEC is basically the governing body of energy production uh, in the Middle East. Um, OPEC comes out and says that they're artificially going to constrain how much supply of oil there is, thereby raising prices again. So just when you think the U.S. has it under control, this effect of global markets ultimately comes into play. And this has been a huge reason why the U.S. wants to start bringing everything back on shore. They don't want to be subject to foreign bodies, foreign countries, foreign companies. Uh, There's just so much risk at their supply chain, at, at everything they use to source goods. They want to start bringing things back on shore. And that's a massive theme over the next 10 years. But, you know, long story short, ultimately, while inflation is starting to to come back down, when you zoom out, it's still an issue. And then going forward, you know, we still think energy prices, which is the core of a lot of inflation, has the ability to keep going back up with these OPEC changes. The U.S. isn't going to be net uh, exporters of energy forever. They, they massively flipped over the last few years. And so this, you know, idea that inflation is over, we think is definitely a little bit overbought at this point. Um, Ultimately, the Fed has signaled they're going to stop raising rates, which is great. They think inflation is coming back down. You know, we're not arguing that. We just we don't think it's anywhere close realistic to their 2% target. But at the end of the day, I mean, increased rates for an increased period of time kills the U.S. economy, kills job growth. Um, and it, it's just really tough for a lot of people to stomach for a while. So at the end of the day, we, we believe the Fed needs to lower rates, but there's going to be a lot of issues along the way before they can really start doing that. Absolutely. And we will get into the complicated like nuances that will turn this into a long-term issue, but that's going to happen after this quick message from our sponsors. This episode of the Flagship Pod is sponsored by Porkbun.com. Porkbun is a refreshingly different domain name registrar with over 500 domain extensions available at the lowest prices around. They've got everything from .com, .finance, and .investments to .app and .dev for the tech-forward community. You get more for your investment with Porkbun as every domain name comes with freebies like SSL certificates, Whois privacy, web and email hosting trials, and so much more. Porkbun even has a new AI generated search tool using ChatGPT, changing the way people look for domain names. It's all backed by incredible support 365 days a year, plus thousands of five-star reviews on Trustpilot from real customers. Their site is simple and easy to navigate, so you can manage everything about your new domain from one place. To celebrate five years of .app, Porkbun is giving listeners a .app or .dev domain name free for the first year. Grab your free .app or .dev domain by going to porkbun.com moby or using the code Moby during checkout. Thank you so much. Let's get back into the actual podcast itself. It's so cool reading ads now, Justin. Anyway, so getting into the actual long-term view here we have on inflation, Justin, I think the main thing we have to keep in mind, right, is simultaneously we're seeing all of this inflationary pressure happened, we're seeing reshoring happen as well. And I think, Justin, the most encouraging sign I see is that OPEC Plus started artificially constraining 
supply earlier last week and wti crude is only up to 82 dollars a barrel right now oil's been kind of flat this week is that an encouraging sign that opec just doesn't have that kind of control over the market anymore or does do oil prices play out over a longer period you don't understand what i'm asking yeah it's a little bit of both i mean so to your point opec artificially you know constrains supply but oil prices in one country aren't necessarily oil prices in another country and historically it's had more of effect here in the U.S. specifically because we were huge importers of energy. But like I said before, over the last few years, we've really changed from net importers to net exporters. Um, so we've ultimately started to tap into a lot of the reserves here in the U.S. and rely, again, this theme of onshoring, but rely more on ourselves in order to produce our own energy. And so here in the U.S., you know, you're not necessarily seeing the price of oil increase too much. I mean, you're still definitely seeing it increase. You know, just go to your your local pump in the last you know few months, and you'll you'll see an increase. However, we're not feeling the increase to to the extent that the rest of the world is. Um, so last year, especially, we saw massive increases in Europe in the price of oil uh, and gas at the pumps and for natural gas, and we just didn't see it here to the same extent here in the U.S. So. Long story short, there's going to be a deviation for as long as we continue to be net exporters. But again, if we start importing drastically from OPEC um, or or other countries, we're ultimately going to be subject to the same issues that whoever else is importing them for. So long story short, you know, ha- will have an effect in the short run, not as much as it used to, you know, just a few years ago. Um, but in the long run, uh, the U.S. has made it clear that they ultimately don't want to rely on other countries for their, you know, domestic security, domestic um, production of goods, oil. They they consider a lot of this to be, you know, a national threat if they're relying on other countries to to fuel their own things. So long story short, I mean, this is we're in the middle of a massive policy shift. And with potentially uh, a new president coming in 2024 or even a continuation of the same um of the same administration, there's always going to be changes, especially as the House either flips and um, this, the same thing in Congress. So long story short, you know, over the long run, we'll see how this will play out. But in the in the very, very short term, OPEC artificially constraining supply does impact inflation, but not nearly to the extent that, you know, it would have just a few years ago. And I think one thing that's really important, too, is understanding just how complicated the U.S. energy situation is right now, because we're trying to play two major themes. One, Biden's IRA is absolutely just shoving money into developing the infrastructure we need to win on all these green investments. You're watching Ford just go absolutely insane with buying whole facilities in Indonesia for getting lithium and nickel, you know, out of Indonesia into America, changing whole Canadian factories into EV battery plants. All this investment happening right now, getting us to a different kind of energy independence. In the same breath, Biden is also the only president who actually went back on years of um, environmental positivity by being the one who's letting ConocoPhillips drill in Alaska, right? However you feel about that is whatever, but it's one of those things where it's going to change our energy dependence entirely over the next five years. And it's watching us kind of do this shift live simultaneously, getting more oil out of our own country while in the same breath getting away from oil entirely so we don't, you know, end up cooking the planet. And so I want to get in. Sorry. (laughs) No, I was just going to say, yeah, this massive policy shift, like the world in the next 10 years is going to look very different than the way it did in the last 10. Um, Bringing everything back on shore, you know, the the way we source our energy, which is ultimately the way the country runs. uh, AI completely changing. Uh, We're in the middle of a huge AI revolution right now, completely changing the way the economy and jobs work. It's just the, the next, for, for those of you who are listening now, or most of you who are listening on the recorded version later on, 
you know, the same strategies that worked in, in, in the investing world 10 years ago are going to be very different for the next 10 years. And I guess that gets us into our next point too, right? We're going to talk a little bit more about energy dependence as we get a better sense of where those shifts are happening. We're still kind of do, doing the math on energy, but AI is one of those things where we've, you know, seen a lot already and we're beginning to understand how that's going to shift, you know, the jobs market, how productivity happens over the next, you know, five to 10 years. Uh, it's been a wild kind of week in AI as well, kind of like low key, chat um Alibaba has announced their chat GPT competitor in the same, like literally five minutes before the Chinese Communist Party came in and said, hey, we're going to kneecap any and all AI efforts by trying to tightly control how AI is done here. Then Amazon announces their own large language models and AI suite via AWS, which means the most powerful like collection of servers in the known universe now has AI as well. So Justin, when you kind of look at this, like the the trend is exponential. And in the last week, we've seen auto GPT, which is people taking chat GPT and programming it to work on itself, build its own agents, and basically just recursively do processes independently of human input. Like this thing happened, this, this, all this started in November, basically, and we're trending exponentially in terms of the development. Like, there's stuff that's happened today that I'm not even going to find out about for a couple of weeks, right? So, from your perspective, Justin, like, when we're looking at this, when we're looking at all the AI investment happening right now, how do you see this kind of shifting where we're going, and, like, what kind of, like, productivity trends are we going to see over the next, like, two to three years as this really kicks off? So, obviously, this is a, a big prediction, and ultimately, even, like, the CEO's of ChatGPT and OpenAI, they'll make predictions, things will change. Technology is always utilized in a way that, you know, no one could ever foresee coming. You know, the internet was created by the US government and DARPA is in order for, you know, different parts of the military to be able to talk and ultimately now, you know, look what it's become. So technologies are are constantly changing and evolving in ways that no one can predict. So I want to preface, you know, what we see now and what we see in a year from now, five years, ten years, twenty years, fifty years is is going to be far different than ultimately what we expect now. We can ultimately make the best guesses and some of them will come true. But what I'm trying to say is, you know, 100% of what I'm saying is is obviously always subject to change. Um, so long story short, with ChatGPT, you know, there there's a handful of ways this can play out. The, the most obvious one is that ultimately it's going to change how the economy works. Um, you know, we're not at a like a general conscious intelligence yet. The fact that we're even having this conversation right now is is crazy. You know, even a few years ago, we'd never have dreamed of talking about as, you know, ChatGPT or one of these AI systems conscious. But right now with these artificial systems, they're helping us do things. And every single day it's changing. Uh, they're helping us do things that we couldn't even have dreamed of a few years ago. The advancements in large language models uh, in AI is just out of control. And so there'll be a lot of displacement of jobs. So, you know, if I look at the most obvious ones, the the industries we'll see that will be ultimately impacted is highly uh, highly automated industries or jobs that can be highly automated. So autonomous vehicles, while they're not fully here yet, the promise is that, or the thought is that they will ultimately displace a lot of drivers, truckers, which is a massive industry, shipping. But now with ChatGPT and a lot of these like types of models, you know, an obvious one is now going after the whole customer support and success, uh, a customer support industry. So if you have an issue with your phone bill or you have an issue, you know, with any bill or any company you're working with, instead of outsourcing it to India, like a lot of companies have done or outsourcing it to the Philippines or, or other parts of Asia, um, you don't necessarily need that anymore. You can now automate this completely through um, 
through like the these AI systems. And so companies like Upwork that have a ton of freelancers on there potentially gets displaced, not overnight, but pretty quickly. Uh, a lot of these companies then who are relying on call centers overseas, while it's super cheap, this becomes even cheaper, more efficient, uh, and ultimately potentially a better process because there's no human error per se involved. And so you'll see companies in certain areas that have massive like customer support systems, uh, increase profitability, but there'll be a lot of job loss. Uh, you'll see the same thing in freelance areas, creative areas that we never imagined could have been displaced. Writing, you know, sales. There's just so many areas that this can ultimately transpose. Um, and while it will definitely be a detriment for a lot of people losing their job, technologies like this ultimately create more jobs. Like that's what we've seen, you know, dating back the last 100, 200 years. There's always a net increase in jobs um, and a net increase in efficiency, which is as a society is something that we're looking for. We're always looking to be more efficient and create better technologies to help us live, you know, a better life. We, we've talked about this stat here before on the podcast, but, you know, 100, 150 years ago, you know, almost 90% of the country was required to farm in order to feed the population. And today it's less than 10%. Um, and because it's less than 10%, 90% of the population now is freed up to be able to pursue other things in theory, make us more prosperous, make the world a better place. So this is kind of a continuation of that. But instead of increases in technology and farming, now it's going to be in traditionally white collar type jobs that we didn't imagine could be displaced, you know, five, 10 years ago, and that will continue to develop. So what it means for here, us as investors is looking for areas and industries that can ultimately be impacted highly, whether it be companies uh, that can utilize the types of technology like this to increase profitability, or companies that ultimately are not utilizing this and we think that somebody can come in and completely take over the space if these technologies aren't being utilized. So this is obviously going to be a very long-term theme that we'll be tracking over the coming, you know, not even months, but years and decades to come. But this is, and I can't stress this enough, a massive monumental shift in the way that we have thought about and used AI to date. Since November and this technology rolled out, this is a lot of people are calling it the iPhone moment in the sense where it's completely revolutionizing the way we're thinking about, you know, technology as ChatGPT and and other large language mo- or uh, large language models evolve. Ultimately, the the rate at which we're innovating and increasing and using AI is just going to completely change and and increase every single day overnight. It's going to be something new daily. It's it's pretty nuts to watch in real time right now. Absolutely. And I think, you know, since it is the iPhone moment, we're looking at that audience. I know a lot of us have been, people have been asking about us, okay, like, what are the, you know, main plays we have in terms of investments? What's the, what's the game we should play here in terms of finding the best play here? And it's the same thing when the actual iPhone moment happened. If you look back and see, you know, how the market completely shifted once Apple released the iPhone in 2007, uh, in the initial uh, phase of that, the real winner was chip makers. So when it comes to AI, we're watching to see who has sort of the best efficiencies, because with AI, the main thing is, is that it's, it's cool to have this service, but it's an insane amount of processing power and therefore energy and therefore actual cost. Again, a chat GPT prompt costs roughly 6 to 8% more on a processor than a Google search does. So Google can do Google searches forever. OpenAI is literally just burning cash with ChatGPT, even with being paid. So all of these people are going to be front-loading costs. Is that going to hurt them in the long term? Remains to be seen, so stick with the chip makers. We're going to hopefully have... We're, we've been putting 
a lot of effort into a new report on NVIDIA that we may put out next week, fingers crossed, that kind of shows where they're going to be strong, where they're going to be weak in terms of the AI revolution. We'll get you that, get that to that soon and maybe review it a little bit more next week, but that's what we're thinking in terms of who's going to win and who's going to lose. If you're making chips, if you're printing silicon and getting better at it and, you know, reducing the amount of pro actual energy it takes to do AI, you're going to be the main winner in this space. And so, Justin, that is kind of getting us a little bit over time, but just in case you want to kind of go over it real quick, under the long-term trend, we're also kind of starting to watch kind of tangential to all of this is like all of the um, kind of climate change stuff that's kind of going live now, all of the potential flooding that's still happening in California, happening in Florida, with all the reshoring happening as well. Like, how do you see, you know, this sort of changing literal climate here in America kind of changing how investment works as well? Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting. So we're seeing it play out to your point in real time. The flooding hasn't necessarily started in California yet, but we see a lot of this snow melt. Ultimately, it's going to start trickling down. And while it's good for the drought, it will cause flooding, but specifically now in Florida, uh, in most of the coastal areas, we're seeing massive flooding. And while this is nothing new, it just ultimately reiterates the fact that coastal regions are going to see more and more flooding as sea levels rise and and um, and as temperatures rise. And we don't need to get into the, the the conversation of you know was global warming real, fake. You know, I I think everyone has their own opinions on that and. I think it's fairly obvious the data points to it but what you can't refute is that regardless of global warming you know what's causing it it's it's that it is happening and so we are seeing sea levels rise we are seeing areas that will be impacted and so from an economic perspective these are areas that we need to watch out for so for example in florida with this flooding like they're going to have a few options either people are going to have to leave these areas in the long run or they're going to have to build the infrastructure needed in order to support you know, living in a, a area that gets flooded often. So what that means is potentially putting a lot of houses on stilts, building areas that block floods um, and like, you know, and dams and other things that ultimately can, can help and levees that can ultimately like help these areas survive and not get flooded year in and year out. And so you look at home building industries, construction industries, U.S. government, more funding towards uh, infrastructure. Um, that, that's one area to look at it where you see mass migration, uh, out of these areas. Um, from a real estate perspective, property values plummet in, in coastal regions that people can't put up with anymore. Right now, we're not necessarily seeing that. But again, this what we want to talk about today, we talked about with AI, uh, we were talking about with inflation in the long run. This is another very, very long-term theme to look at, um, this mass potential migration out of coastal areas. And if there's not migration, uh, ultimately the mass amount of investment needed in order to support this. Exactly. And one thing we'd also be watching, too, is the potential renegotiation of water rights deals between California, Nevada and Arizona, as a lot of the manufacturing that's going to be a part of reshoring in America kind of has to happen in the Southwest, just given sort of like the diversified labor force you need. So we're watching that as well in terms of, you know, hopefully California relinquishing some of like the really tight controls they have on allowing water into those other regions. That's another really long conversation. But to give you an idea of what we're watching your audience, we're an extraordinarily complicated period in history, right, with a lot of different huge factors, a lot of really big, big energy issues that are going to sort of like 
have these widespread effects across really subtle areas of the economy, which is why reshoring is such a huge deal anyway. It's barely anyone's talking about it, and yet it's happening so fast and so widespread that it's honestly wild the amount of investment that's coming in, the amount of revenue that the companies that are doing automation, doing these kinds of reshoring things are happening. So just to give you an idea of what we're looking into, we are entering into the complicated phase of this inflationary environment where we're seeing a lot of like small level investment that people can capture upside from, but it's kind of complicated to see where it is. But either way, Justin, um, I think that's a pretty solid place to kind of put a bow on it. Like, again, as things get potentially a little better, as the sun shines a little bit brighter every month, as inflation gets a little bit less and less and less, even though we're comparing it to, you know, 9% inflation from last year, things are getting to that point where we want to see where our actual money goes and can actually grow as we sort of like potentially survive this without like a full-blown recession everyone's now everyone who said a recession would happen now are saying it's now going to happen in 2024 so we'll see how that plays out but as we think about this here justin any final thoughts from you here i know we've kind of gone way over time on this but final thoughts from you before we go ahead and just read the credits here no i think this is a good episode you know again as we start to enter earnings season we can especially start talking about more companies and how they're reporting you know we're seeing like we said the banking industry start to improve especially in the large names uh, we're starting to see travel continue to pick back up in airlines. Um, but this is a good time for us to sit back and look at longer term trends. And, you know, as uh, as earnings start to get played out, we can we'll dive into it and answer any questions you, you all have. Exactly. At least it's the one time we get a chance to breathe before uh, ne uh, a week from now when uh, earnings season kicks off in full swing. We are just drowning in news and trends. But either way, audience, we really appreciate your time. Again, it's been a solid week for inflation and the fact that bank earnings came back today in any way positive is a truly strong sign. But the real issue to think about is how consolidation is happening as we watch JP Morgan go up 7% and Citigroup, you know, do decently as well. While regional banks are kind of either flat or down a bit. The fact there's been no more contagion coming out of earnings reports is really awesome, but it's a lot to remain to be seen. Inflation's trending in the right direction, but we have a long way to go and there's probably no path for us to get below 4% inflation inside of this year. And remember, 4% is literally double where we want to be. Regardless, audience, a lot of positive trends happening, but it's really important to keep looking long-term as we move forward from here. So I really appreciate you sticking with us during this, you know, pretty complex conversation. If you have any questions for us, you can always hit us up at helloatmobi.co or hit us up in our Discord where these conversations actually happen live every week. And you can, you know, ask us questions live if you want to. Regardless, audience, we really appreciate your time. That's a pretty solid place to end it. So just so you know, this podcast is produced, hosted, and voiced by me, Peter Starr. All the intellectual value coming from the Moby.co flagship pod podcast is coming from our analyst team, which is headed up by Justin Kramer, CEO, co-founder, and chief analyst here at Moby.co. Again, you can hit us up at helloatmoby.co if you have any questions. Find us on TikTok and Instagram for more up-to-the-minute stuff. And hit us up at moby.co slash go if you want to get inside sort of our long-term thinking or our email, which gets us, you know, your pulse check every day on the markets. Regardless, audience, really appreciate your time and as always we'd like to leave you with peace love and incremental gains everyone be well thank you so much This episode of The Flagship Pod is sponsored by Porkbun.com. Porkbun is a refreshingly different domain name registrar with over 500 domain extensions available at the lowest prices around. They've got everything from .com, .finance, and .investments to .app and .dev for the tech-forward community. You get more for your investment with Porkbun as every domain name comes with freebies like SSL certificates, Whois privacy, web and email hosting trials, and so much more. Porkbun even has a new AI 
AI-generated search tool using ChatGPT, changing the way people look for domain names. It's all backed by incredible support 365 days a year, plus thousands of five-star reviews on Trustpilot from real customers. Their site is simple and easy to navigate, so you can manage everything about your new domain from one place. To celebrate five years of .app, Porkfun is giving listeners a .app or .dev domain name free for the first year. Grab your free .app or .dev domain by going to porkbun.com slash moby or using the code moby during checkout. Thank you so much.